You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Paragold, a church committed to making the real Jesus known to every man, woman, and child. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagold.com. All right, so imagine for just a moment that you are an ancient peasant living in Rome. Life for you is is pretty tough. Uh, Death and disease is common. People uh, are crammed in the slums of cities that smell disgusting and are ruled by violent men. So you're just trying to survive. And imagine that today you're at the local temple uh, because you know that if you're going to survive, you need God's protection. And so uh, the problem is, though you're there at the temple trying to get God's protection, from what you've heard, the gods are very temperamental, so you don't really know whether they like you or not. You don't know where you stand, right? Are you in or are you out? So you spend most of your time every day, right, trying to, to sacrifice to God, uh, to do whatever you can to get the gods on your side. So this is an unpredictable world, just like the gods who supposedly rule it. But then imagine one day, you walk out the temple... And a crowd is gathered around a man. And you've seen this man before. Uh, This is the man Saul. He's a religious fanatic. Uh, He's a violent man who is famous for murdering Christians. And as you walk by, you hear him talking. but, But you hear him talking about something different. Something that is called the way. So you stop and you listen and you notice that this man, Saul, is a whole new man talking about a whole new world, a world where people from all walks of life can get in on it. Not a world that is governed by volatile, unpredictable gods, but a world that is ruled by God who is stable and good and gracious and merciful. Clearly, as you would hear this man talk, you would realize something significant has happened to change his life. And the question that you would be asking if you were there is what exactly happened to this guy? What is it that is in his story that has led him from literally being a terrorist to becoming the greatest international missionary the world has ever known next only to Jesus Christ? This morning, as we begin to dive into Acts chapter 9, we're going to get an answer to that question. As we look at the single most famous conversion story the world has ever known. A conversion that caused the gospel of Jesus to explode from a small band of 120 of Jesus' followers to this global, worldwide movement that has left many scholars and historians today still dumbfounded and scratching their heads, wondering exactly what happened. And in order to get a running start, I actually want to pick up our story in Acts chapter 7. So if you flip over just a page or two to Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 57, uh, there's a man named Stephen who stands up to preach the gospel. And while he is preaching, look what happens. Verse 57, it says that they... And that's talking about the Sanhedrin. They were the uh, top ruling um, authority in Israel that day. They were kind of the Supreme Court. It says that they cried out with a loud voice, and they stopped their ears, and they rushed together at Stephen. Then they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. So apparently, uh, Stephen's preaching career was very short. Um, They cast him out of the city. They stoned him. And look at this. And then witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. 
And in chapter 8, verse 1, if you skip down, it says, And Saul approved his execution. So this is how we are introduced to the man that we all know as the Apostle Paul. The man who would go on to write 13, think about this, 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. But here, he is not the Apostle Paul. When we look at his story, right, what we know about him, according to what we see here, is he is a young man. He's probably in his early 30s, and he is really high up in the Sanhedrin. I mean, in fact, people are looking to him for approval for the execution of this man, Stephen. So this is a young man who is already at the top of his game. Uh, we know that Saul is brilliant. We know that he is educated. In fact, we learn later in the book of Acts that he was a disciple of Gamaliel, uh, who was the most brilliant thinker inside of Judaism. He was kind of the Albert Einstein of Saul's day. And so by the world's standards, Saul is very successful. He has it all together. I mean, he is set. But as we see here, he is not on the side of Jesus. And as a result, look what happens in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Again, it says, Saul approved Stephen's execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And then devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation for him. But look at this. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. The word that is used here for ravaging in verse 3 is the Greek word lamano, which literally means to destroy, to devour, to devastate, ravage, or mangle. It was a word that was used to describe what a wild animal would do when it came to tearing apart and mangling its prey. And this is the word that is used to describe Saul. This is a man who is not just indifferent to Christianity. He is violently opposed to Christianity. He is literally attempting to rip the church to pieces. And it starts with the stoning of Stephen, which was not grotesque to to Saul. He's not sitting there being like, man, how did I get caught up in all this? Like he, He enjoys watching it. But because Saul is not satisfied with just the death of one Christian... He continues to persecute the church throughout chapter 8. And then if you flip back over to Acts chapter 9, despite the fact that a revival breaks out in Acts chapter 8 as a result of people preaching the gospel, because Saul has such a vendetta against the Jesus movement, because he is filled with so much rage, look what happens. Acts chapter 9 verse 1, but Saul still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So now murder is becoming so easy to Saul, it's like breathing. I mean, this is just second nature to him. It is not a big deal. I mean, in fact, he cannot help but do it. I was thinking about that Ted Bundy documentary we were talking about where like literally Bundy got to a point where like he could not stop. Like, you know, most serial killers, they kill someone, they go hide out for a while. But Bundy, he like got to this point where he's just going house to house to house. He's just bloodthirsty. And that's like kind of the picture we have right here of Saul. But Saul still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way... That is disciples. Before disciples were ever called Christians, they were called the way. And that comes straight from the lips of Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And because Saul hated these people, because he hated those who were practicing the way of Jesus, he goes to the high priest, he gets a permission slip to travel 200 miles north to Damascus 
to try to capture those who were trying to sneak away from him. And it says in verse 2 that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he would bring them bound. He would parade them back as prisoners to Jerusalem. Um, I had a, a spot on my face biopsied uh, a couple weeks ago to find out if it was cancerous or precancerous. And uh, fortunately, it was precancerous. Um, but what they told me is that if it is cancer, and you know this if you've ever had skin cancer, um, they say that, that, that not only do they remove the spot, but they'll begin to cut away at the margins. And, and the whole goal of this is they say, look, we need to get every last cancer cell even on the edge, so that it does not spread any further. That's the same ruthless precision that Saul is taking when it comes to those practicing the way. He, 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 he hates people. Say, he literally he looks at these Christians as a cancer, and he says even if it means riding 200 miles north to Damascus, right? Saul is willing to go to the margins for the purpose of cutting out the last disciple so that the gospel of Jesus Christ will spread no further. So again, this is not a good guy. It's not a guy that we would look at and say, man, like I'd like to hook my friend up with this kind of person, right? But what's amazing to me is despite the fact that this is the last man you would ever think to be converted to Christianity, it was the next guy on God's list, which should be hopefully an encouragement to you today, whether it's your spouse or a child or a friend, sometimes the last person you would ever think is going to be converted is the next one on God's list. This is a ruthless, evil man, but he is about to go, if you watch this, he's about to go from being commissioned by the high priest of Israel for the purpose of keeping people outside the kingdom to being commissioned by the high priest, Jesus Christ, for the purpose of bringing people into the kingdom. And here's how this happens. Verse 3. Now, as Saul went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus. You're talking about a bad day, right? <laughs> like this is a bad day for Saul. And yet also at the same time, the best day of his life. Because up to this point, I mean, just think about this. Saul had completely rejected Jesus as the Messiah. He believed that Jesus was nothing more than a lunatic who deserved to be crucified. But right now, in this moment, he realizes that Jesus is not at all who he thought that he is. I loved Kenny's, I loved everyone's testimony earlier, but Kenny Fields was talking about how, how he came to a place where he realized God is not who he thought God is. Right? That's what Saul happens. That's what happens right here. Saul thinks about persecuting Christians that he's doing work for the one true God. He's a very religious man. Right? But, but that everything he's doing is for the wrong motives, for the wrong God. And in this moment, he realizes, right, that Jesus Christ really is the resurrection and the life. He is the one who has conquered sin, death, and hell. He is the one true God who created the universe and now holds it together. And it is this creator God who in his grace, please hear this, not in his wrath, but in his grace, knocks Saul off his horse. One of the most gracious things that God could ever do for you is knock you off your horse to keep you from heading down a path of destruction. God kicks Saul off of his horse. He gets his attention. The only place he has to look is up at Jesus. And Jesus says, look right at me. I am Jesus. And listen to this. I'm the one whom you have been persecuting. Now, I could spend a lot of time on this, but uh, we don't have time this morning. I I just want to say this, though. Think about this. If Jesus died in our place for our sins, and then he rose from the dead, and as we saw in Acts chapter 1, he ascended 
to be back with his father in heaven. Uh, question I want to ask you is, how in the world then, if he is in heaven, can Saul persecute Jesus? How does, how's that possible? I mean, we know how he could persecute like a, a human being here, like physically, tangibly. We know how that could happen. But how is it possible that he is persecuting Jesus? And what you need to see, and this is so important today, what you need to see is this. The reason Jesus says to Saul that by persecuting the church, you are persecuting me, is because the church is the body of Christ. This was a profound moment in Saul's life. In fact, it was so profound in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It was a church that, that uh, Saul went on to plant. He wrote a whole chapter in 1 Corinthians 12 about this theology that the church is the body of Christ. And the reason this is important is what Jesus is saying here is, listen, how you treat the church is how you treat me. And I know for some of you, you're like, well, I, I, that's, that's great, Jerry, but I would never dream of persecuting the church. That may be true, but I think in our individualistic, hyper-digital age, though you would never seek to persecute the church, many of us are tempted to ignore the church, to treat the church like an accessory, as something that's not really that important in our discipleship to Jesus. But because the church is the body of Christ, please hear me, when you choose to live distant and disconnected from the church, you cannot but live distant and disconnected to Jesus. That whole saying of, I love Jesus, but I hate the church, it doesn't work. There's not a theology for that in the scripture. How you treat the church is how you treat Jesus. For some of you in here, maybe this is the, the main thing you need to hear today. For some of you, you're like, I don't feel like God is real. I don't feel his love. I don't experience his grace. I don't experience his mercy. It's because you're trying to experience all of that apart from the church, and it's impossible. You're trying to live disconnected from the body of Christ. The church is the tangible, real life, real moment expression of Jesus Christ. And that's what Christ is getting at right here. He says, Saul, when you made a decision to persecute the church, you made a decision to persecute me. But then look at this. Behold the grace of God right here. Jesus says, you've been persecuting me, but verse 6, but now rise. So he knocks him down, but he says, get up. Rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. The men who you're traveling with, or the men who were traveling with him, stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Um, some people, it's easy, I'm thinking about Presley. He's talking about he's, he, he heard the message over and over and over. But there's a difference between hearing it and having your eyes open to seeing who Jesus really is. These men, they heard something. They couldn't see anything. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand, and they brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. I'd love to think about like, what in the world was Saul imagining in this moment. I would imagine he was going back. He had the whole Old Testament mem- memorized as a Pharisee. He had to have every single bit of the Old Testament memorized. And I imagine he was going back and thinking about how everything pointed to this Jesus. The temple sacrifices, the priests, the tabernacles. He, I've been reading the thing all wrong. Sitting there for three days, not eating, not drinking. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am. I love how nonchalant that is. Hey, here I am. I just the Lord just talked to him in a vision. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight and at the house of Judas. Look for a man uh, of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. So now clearly he has a relationship with Jesus. He's talking to him. He has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now let me ask you this question. Could Jesus have just healed Saul's and, and, and touched his eyes if he wanted to do it? Yes or no? Yes? Why do you think he told Ananias to do it? Because he needed Ananias to do it? 
No, for the same reason he tells us to do the mission and to do the things that he calls us to do today, because he loves to involve us in his work. He loves to use everyday, ordinary, jacked up people, just like Ananias, a man we don't know anything about before. We never hear about him again. He says, hey, I want to use you to be a part of my great work of transforming the world. It's just awesome to me. And so he says, Ananias, I want you to go. I want you to be the one who lays hands. But Ananias answered like we all would, Lord, um, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done. To your saints in Jerusalem, like God, you know what I'm talking about here? Right? And he has authority, I don't know if you realize this, God, from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Right? So like, think about this, Lord, like you're trying to get me killed. Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is my chosen instrument. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles. That's you and me, by the way. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. He's going to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. And look at this. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So now Saul is going to go from being the persecutor to being persecuted, to go from inflicting pain to enduring pain for the cause of Christ. And if you know anything about Saul's life, about Paul's life, you know how true this is. I mean, this is a man who suffered in ways that most of us will never suffer. And in the midst of it all, what's crazy about him is he would stand up and say insane things like, to live as Christ and to die as gain. I mean, can you imagine how frustrating this guy would be to an enemy of the gospel? Hey, if you don't shut your mouth, we're going to kill you. Hey, to die is gain. Because if I die, I get to go be with Jesus and my faith will become sight. All right, fine then, man. We're not going to kill you. We're going to pelt you with rocks and then just drag you out and let you just sit there in the sand. Saul says in Romans 8, I consider the sufferings of this present world not even worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed. Which beach you guys want to go to? It's absolutely just incredible. What a frustrating guy he was to an enemy of the gospel. Man, they try everything they can to shut him up after he meets Jesus, but he does not shut up. He just keeps pressing forward, advancing the gospel everywhere that he goes. But before any of that, again, right here in Acts 9, he is still Saul of Tarsus, still known as a serial killer. But notice what happens next. After God says to Ananias, go and lay hands on him so his sight can be regained, it says Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on them look at this laying his hands on Saul he said brother Saul I think this is probably my favorite verse in this whole passage because just imagine being Ananias I mean here is Saul a man who has killed your family and friends a man who has forced people from their homes And yet in this moment, after all he has done, you look him in the eyes and you say, Brother Saul. I don't know about you, but that's not what I'm going to say. That's not the first place that I'm going to go. And yet this is exactly what Ananias does. Because you know why? Ananias is a man who has been rocked by the gospel of Jesus Christ himself. By the gospel that says, I am far worse than I could ever imagine but I'm more loved than I could ever dream. The gospel that says that I am a sinner just like you, and it is only by the sheer grace and mercy of God poured out through Jesus Christ that I myself have gone from being an enemy of God to being his beloved child. You see, because Ananias understands the gospel, despite everything that Saul has done to destroy everyone who belongs to the way, Ananias looks Saul in the eyes 
And as a mouthpiece of Jesus, because again, the church is the body of Christ, he says to him, Brother Saul. Which is in essence his way of saying, look, you are no longer covered in the blood of Christians, but you are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. That was shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Therefore, welcome to the family of God. This was a powerful moment for Ananias. It was a powerful moment for Saul. He laid his hands on him, Brother Saul, Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 18, immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained sight. He didn't just get physical sight in this moment. He got spiritual sight. And as a result, he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. So there it is. That's the most famous conversion story the world has ever known. It's a story of how Jesus turned a terrorist into a missionary so you and I can get the gospel. And just as we watch today, more people can still be baptized in the name of Jesus. And there was a lot that we could take away from this passage, but for the sake of time, I just want to share two things from you that I think that God wants us to take away from the story of Saul's conversion. And the first thing I want you to see is this. is When we look at the story of how Saul was converted, what we see is that salvation is about total, complete, holistic life transformation. When Saul encounters Jesus... He is completely transformed. Everything in his life is turned upside down. Or you could say right side up, however you want to say it. He receives, listen to this, a whole new identity. He goes from being Saul to Paul. He receives a new community. He goes from being in the Sanhedrin to the way. A new mind. He begins to look at the law and the prophecies and all the scriptures different. He receives a new mission. He goes from trying to stop the Jesus movement to spreading the Jesus movement. He receives a new heart. The things he once hated, he now loves. This is called the theology of regeneration, where God changes your passions and your desires. And he received a new future. So he has a new hope, a new horizon that allows him to continue forward, even in the midst of great opposition and suffering. I mean, this man is absolutely transformed from the inside out. And please hear me. I believe this transformation that we see in Saul is a beautiful picture of what God wants to do inside of each and every single one of you. And I think it is so important for us to hear this today because... One of the real serious problems that we have facing the church in America right now, and I really hate to throw stones, um, but this is a really serious problem. One of the, the problems we have right now is the fact that we have lost the fullness of the gospel. That we have somehow misplaced the panoramic, sweeping scope of what God intends to do through the death, resurrection of Jesus. And as a result, the gospel has been reduced to what Presley said of just ask Jesus into your heart so that he can forgive your sins and you can go to heaven when you die. Now, is it true that you can ask Jesus to forgive you for sins and you go to heaven when you die? Is that true? Yes. But listen, God wants so much more for you than just a change of address. He wants to give you a whole new identity, a whole new community, a whole new heart and mind and mission. He wants to absolutely remake you from the inside out to take you from heading down a path of destruction to heading down the narrow path that leads to life. He wants to take the part of you that is anxious and depressed and discontent and drawn to bad habits that are robbing you of joy. He wants to replace all of that with a flourishing life that cannot be overthrown no matter what the world throws at you. But here's the thing. 
In order for you to receive this kind of life, the life that you are longing for today, you need to know that life will never, never happen apart from a serious commitment to Jesus. It will never happen apart from a half-hearted commitment, one foot in, one foot out. It will never happen apart from this idea of I'm just going to give Jesus my afterlife. No, you have to give him this life. All of it. Not 98%. I was talking with Jason Noel this past week, and a pastor most of his adult life, and said that, man, I'm just now coming to a place where when I go to bed at night, it's like God's the last thought of my mind. I wake up in the morning, he's the last thought. He said, man, I've just learned to be content no matter the situation that I am in. And I said, well, what do you think the issue is and what, what happened? And he said, because I'd always given Jesus 98%. He said, it's like I invited Jesus into my house and said, hey, come in here, I'll give you the living room. Come over in here, I'm going to give you the kitchen. I'll give you that bedroom. And then we walked by and Jesus said, what about in the closet? And I said, ah, you don't care about what's in the closet. Don't worry about that. It's going on. He said that Jesus said to him, we're not going any further until you show me what's in the closet. And you give it to me. And that's what Jesus is calling you to today. And if you think that is radical, if you think, Jared, you're just being kind of like, that's just preacher talk. You're being above and beyond. Well, let me just tell you what Jesus says. In Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Translation, if you want to be my disciple, you have to place all of your life into my hands. You have to give me your life and your dreams and your agenda and your relationships, all that you have to me, and then and only then can you experience the life and the love that you have been longing for that cannot be found apart from me. This is why C.S. Lewis says the following, Give up yourself and you'll find your real self. Lose your life and you'll save it. Submit to death. Death of your ambitions and favorite wishes and every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred and loneliness and despair and rage, ruin and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. So salvation, the first point, is about complete, total, holistic life transformation from the inside out as a result of surrendering everything that you have to Jesus. My second final point, I think implication from this text is this. If you have experienced that transformation, if you have received the grace and mercy of God, if you have yourself been baptized and come through the baptism waters, what I want you to hear is this. What God has done in you, he now wants to do through you. I love that line in verse 15 where God refers to Saul as his chosen instrument. Uh, Paul, later on in Galatians 1 Uh, When he's talking about his conversion, he says that the reason he was converted in Galatians 1 verse 15 is because the God who had set me apart before birth called me by his grace to go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. You know, the reality is whether you're an apostle or you're a stay-at-home mom or you're a factory worker or whatever it is you do, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have been called by God to go and preach the gospel. Before you were ever born... The Bible says God sets you apart to help fulfill his mission, to live beyond yourself for the good of the world and the glory of his name. 
Paul would write about this later in Ephesians chapter 2, and he would say, For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not a work, so no one can boast. It is a gift of God, for you have been, he says, created in Christ. You are now his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which was prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. If you are a Christian, what you need to know is though you were not saved by good works, you have been saved for good works. What God has done in you, he now wants to do through you so that others can experience his grace, mercy, and love. This is why you have been created. This is why you have been saved. And this is why you've been left on this planet. If God was just after a relationship with you, he would just rapture you up to heaven as soon as you gave your life to him. Because that's where a perfect relationship is. He's left you here to live as a witness, as a missionary, as a sent one with the gospel of Jesus Christ to a world that is in desperate need of good news. What he has done in you, he wants to do through you. If you have become a recipient of the gospel message, he now wants you to become a participant in the gospel mission. And I know, I know that living on mission is scary. I know that it makes you uncomfortable. I know that it involves sacrifice. But please hear me. We're almost done this morning. I promise you, I promise you, you would rather die surging ahead in the name of Jesus Christ than drown in a crowded sea of apathy. You would rather live beyond yourself. You would rather, in the words of the great missionary Jim Elliott, who would be martyred for the cause of Christ, to lose what you cannot keep so that you can gain what you cannot lose. That being said, this morning as we end, I want to ask you this question. And as always, I'm in front of a crowd. I'm in front of a crowd of individuals. And so the question I want to ask you is this. Do you want to be a cultural Christian? Or do you want to follow Jesus? Because you cannot do both. For some of you this morning... In the words of Ed Stetzer, you need to repent of your version of Christianity and you need to give your life to Jesus. Today is the day of salvation for some of you. Like Saul, you need to bring your story and your past and your present and your future, the good, the bad, the ugly, your successes, your, your failures and all of that and bring it under the lordship of Jesus. Trusting today that no matter who you are or where you have come from or what you have done or not done, that you are not beyond the grace of God. As we begin to transition into a time of communion, I want to share with you from 1 Timothy chapter 1. And the band can go ahead and come forward if they want to, but others I would encourage you just, just let me read this over you. This is 1 Timothy chapter 1. Verse 15, this is the Apostle Paul once again writing to young Timothy, who's a pastor of a church that Paul had planted. And I want you to hear this as we transition to a time of communion. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul says this, starting in verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Why did Jesus Christ come into the world? To save sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And listen to what Paul says, of whom I am foremost. So if Paul walked into a room today, I don't know what you've done this past week or what you haven't done. I don't know what you did even last night. 
But if, if, if Paul walked up here and preached today, he would get up here and literally, he would with full conviction believe he was the biggest sinner in this room. Full conviction. That's not just like he's trying to be vulnerable, sort of be likes now. Like, oh, I'm a big sinner. No, he really would believe I'm a big, you bring your best sin, I promise you I'm a bigger sinner than any of you. It's the guy who wrote the majority of the New Testament. The saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. I received mercy, verse 16. I received mercy. He's talking about his conversion, Acts chapter 9. I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, as the chief of sinners, Jesus Christ might display for you his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. You may have think you have exhausted the patience of God. That's a lie from the enemy. You are not beyond the grace of God today. And every single week as Christians, we come to remember that reality, the patience, the long-suffering of God, that he pursued us, and the scripture says that he gave his life for us while we were still sinners. If you're a believer today in Christ, if you're following him, I'm going to encourage you to come. We have two stations in the front, two in the back, gluten-free option for you in my back left. Um, tear off a piece of bread, dip it in the juice, be reminded of the patience of God. If he can save a man like Saul and do something like he did through him, imagine what he can do through you. For others of you in here, if you have never trusted in Jesus Christ, I pray that today is a day of salvation for you. You don't have to come and talk to me. There's nothing special about me. I'm not the great high priest. Jesus is. You can go to him where you are. Just surrender your life to him. For me, I was 20 years old when this happened. And I just, in my own bedroom, looked and I said, God, honestly, like I, I don't know exactly who all you are. I got a lot of questions still, but I know this. I need you. And I, in that moment, that was my prayer of salvation. I just, I said, whoever you really are, I'm bringing all of myself to you. And in that moment, God saved me. Maybe that's that moment for you. If you do want someone to talk to, though, I'll be up here in the front. Uh, we can hang out here by the horse trough. And so Adam is right up here. And we'd love to talk with you and help you understand next steps. So let's stand together. Uh, the band's going to lead us in one more song. We'll go ahead and partake of communion. And then we'll be dismissed. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for uh, every man, woman, and child who was able to wake up this morning and who is here today. And I do pray that right now um, for each of us, for those who maybe have been following you for a long time, that we will uh, remember again what you have done for us and that what you have done in us, you now want to do through us. And I pray that we truly will live as your witnesses, as your sent ones, to go and proclaim the greatest news of all time. Not that the world has to work to try to earn a relationship with you, but the love and the life they are longing for has been poured out and accomplished through Jesus Christ. And all they have to do is come with the empty hands of faith to receive that. I pray for those who have not received you today, Jesus, who have not trusted in you, that are still trusting in their success, their successes are still hung up by their past, that you would right now the power of your Holy Spirit, open their eyes to see you as you really are. They would surrender everything to you. That there would truly be a sweet surrender in their life. And as a result of the death, you'll bring about a resurrection and life greater than they could ever imagine. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.